You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got Jay Mintzmeyer. Jay Mintzmeyer is a shipping analyst. He is a value investor. He's a PhD from Harvard, I believe, if I remember correctly. And uh, so, you know, one... Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jay. Now, I've been a big fan of your work, especially around shipping supply chains. You know, this is sort of the one theme that now everyone's looking at today. You know, what's going on with supply chains? You know, is that ever going to stop? And what's going on with shipping? And uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, you know, you are one of the smartest people when it comes to shipping on Twitter. And and just generally speaking, you know, you, you are one of the smartest people when it just comes to shipping and supply chains, generally speaking. So I think we're going to have a great time. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome to get you on. Yeah, excited to be here. I do have to give one clarification. I'm a PhD student, so I haven't, uh, okay. haven't finished my dissertation yet. Uh, just working on, I'm actually on my second year of, of studies here. So I just want to clarify that um, just so I don't get in trouble with anybody. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here and talk with you. It's just such a topical time to be looking at the supply chain and, and what's going on. Yep. And you know, one thing that and I'm just generally curious, so your first name is just Jay, right? Yeah, that's it. It's just the letter. And yeah. so everybody always asks me that. So I'm glad we, we got that out of the way and, and cleared up uh, people's uh, <laughs> questions. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. So, you know, I wanted to start off by talking about your background, how you, number one, got into investing, but more importantly, you know, what led you to sort of specialize in shipping? You know, most people you know, usually go say, you know, down the road of tech, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with say semiconductors, computers, et cetera, or, you know, or, or some, uh, uh, why, why shipping? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. It, it always comes up a lot. People are like, why do you spend so much time in this weird little neck of the woods? Um, look, when I, when I grew up, I always had a fascination with looking at the trains and seeing those like 40 foot boxes on them and, and seeing the, the Hanjin, the Costco and CMA, CGM, and, you know, wondering where they were going and what was happening. Always had a fascination with trade flows through airports and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, as I grew up and I, I went to college and I studied economics, and I studied international trade, and I learned about how those actual, you know, how those trade flows actually work. And, and I learned about the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and, and how that the shipping demand globally had just exploded into the 21st century. And so, so, so it was kind of a marriage of like just childhood interest and, and, and fascination with it, followed by the educational background of like how all this stuff works. And then finally, the investment side, and, and that's the side that you know folks care about the most now, is this is a, a small little patch of stocks. There's about 55, 60 of them. And they're not tiny, they're not penny stocks, but they're small caps. I mean, they range anywhere from about 50 million up to maybe two, three, four billion. Um, so they're not penny stocks, but they're smaller. And, and that means the big banks, they can't really afford to spend a lot of time covering these and doing a lot of research, the big hedge funds. Uh, they're just, the stocks are too small for them to really take yep. positions in. So there's not as much competition uh, on both the research side and on the investing and trading side. Um, and I like it. So it's like the best of both worlds. Yep. 100%. And you know, one thing that people really want to know is, so could you sort of give a 
quick primer on the shipping industry. Could you sort of talk about, number one, what are the different kinds of shipping? What are the different factors that affect it? And sort of how the shipping industry really functions? Yeah, of course. It, there, there's kind of a misnomer out there, and I'm glad, so I'm glad we're hitting this head on, and that shipping is all just one big cycle. People are like, oh, shipping is kind of like housing or oil. Well, it, it's actually six or seven segments of shipping. It's not just one thing. Um, so we'll talk about the main six that we focus on. And so one of those is dry bulk. So think about coal and iron or grain, things like that, forestry products. Um, and then another one is container ships, which are the popular one, right? That's the one everybody cares about now. Yep. Um, those are the ones that just carry those 20 foot and 40 foot boxes around everywhere. And so anything that you see on the shelf at Walmart or Amazon, that's going in a big container ship. Another one that was popular last year was tankers. We have both crude tankers, which carry the oil around, crude oil, and then we have product tankers, which carry refined stuff. So jet fuel, gasoline, mm -hmm. diesel. It takes, a, it takes a cleaner tank uh, that's more specialized to carry that stuff. Crude oil is more like a bathtub, you know, just dump it in there. Um, and then there's the gas ships, which are both LNG, which is liquefied natural gas. That's usually mostly for heating and for power production. And there's LPG propane, which is used more so for cooking and for chemical production and stuff like that. So th those are the main six that we cover. And each one of those six has a separate supply and demand aspect. And you asked me, and this, this question could be very complex. We could spend our entire podcast an hour talking about just you know, how the supply and demand factors work. But big picture, the rates, which is what you're getting for shipping for releasing out your ship, depends on supply and demand, just like anything else in economics. So that's what we're focused on. We're focused on the supply, how many ships are on the water, how fast are they moving? And we're focused on the demand, which is not just global demand, it's actually something called ton miles. So how much cargo do you have and how far is it going? Mm -hmm. So another big misconception that, that's enabled us to, I think, exploit some, some mispricing and shipping is that a lot of folks just look at global demand. They're like, well, global oil demand, you know, it's flat. Or, you know, global steel demand or coal demand, ah, we don't think that's gonna move. Well, what those folks are missing is the ton mileage it matters where the trade flows are going. So if you're shifting from one route that's shorter to another route that's longer, you can actually drive those rates way up. And I'll give you one quick example. And then I know this is a long answer, so we can get the next one. But oh, no, no, go ahead. One example in dry bulk that, that, that a lot of folks didn't catch on to or, or missed was what happened with Australia and China last year. And this is of particular interest to me because I'm a PhD student. And my PhD focus is on trade flows and national security implications. Mm -hmm. So last year, when, when China was in the midst of the COVID lockdowns, there was an international call for investigating China for both the origins of COVID and how they've handled it. Yep. And Australia jumped on this and said, yeah, we need to go investigate China. Well, China didn't like that, right? They were questioning China's authority. And China responded by banning all of Australia's coal exports. China and Australia were huge trade partners with that coal. And it wasn't just coal, it was some other things too, um, beef and wine and smaller product, but coal was the big one. And we caught on to that right away. First of all, this is strange. It was a big escalation by China, provocation. But secondly, for, as investors, right, we put on our money-making hats you know, <laughs> and uh, realized this is going to divert a hell of a lot of coal. It's instead of just going to Australia to China, which is a pretty short route, we're going to be pushing Australia's exports all the way across the world. They're going to be shipping it to all different countries. And China is going to have to pull coal from further sources. They're going to have to go to Africa. They're going to have to go to the United States. They're going to have to go to places that create a lot of ton mile demand. So that's one example uh, happened last summer, still ongoing. 
And, and, and nobody's really focused on, on that. It's just kind of a niche topic where the global coal demand didn't really have to go up very much, but just because the trade routes got shifted around, the uh, dry bulk rates have went way up. Got it, got it. You know, taking, well, taking one step back, so when you, so, so when you talk about ton mileage, so what you're referring to there is that instead of taking, say, a shorter route, you're taking a longer route now, and that is what, that's what's affecting shipping rates, right? Exactly. And that's on the demand side. And it can go the other way too. You could have a longer route that gets delayed or canceled or diverted into a shorter route. Or what we're really looking at now going into 23, 24, 25. So thinking several years in the future. I mean, you have to think several years in the future as an investor, if you want to be successful, is all the climate change regulations. Uh, these climate change regulations are going to result in a lot of the older ships. They're obsolete and efficient. They're going to have to be pushed out of the fleet. Secondly, a lot of the ships are going to have to go slower uh, because when a ship goes slower, their emissions are a lot more efficient. It's kind of like driving a car down the freeway. You want to drive a car on the freeway at 55 to 65 miles per hour. Like that's the most, I mean, people are in a hurry. They don't want to go 55, but if you're trying to be efficient, you have to drive at that speed. That's the way cars are designed. If you drive a car down the freeway at 90, your gas mileage drops more than drops in half. I think it goes down like 60%. Yep. If you think about a ship and the way it goes through water, it's cutting through all that water. It's like a car, but even more extreme. It'd be like driving a car during a hurricane. So when you go from, let's say 11 or 12 knots, nautical miles per hour, and you go from 11 or 12 to like 14, that's only what, a 20% increase in speed? Yep. Your fuel consumption more than doubles. I mean, it's exponential. Yep. It's like a spike on a chart. So these new environmental regulations are gonna force a lot of these ships to go slower. Well, think what happens when you take the entire global fleet and you make everything go slower. Yeah. It's, like, it's like artificially reducing your supply. Yep. If your demand is constant and your supply goes down, your rates go sky high. Yep. So that, exactly. Yep. So that's why we look at these new incoming regulations and, and we see things like uh, last week, uh, the COP26, the climate regulations, uh, or the, excuse me, the climate summit. Um, and we're just like licking our chops and getting excited about shipping. Awesome. Yep. I know a lot of people have sort of been thinking about the ongoing dry bulk and, you know, spot rate sell-off or sort of a pullback. So what are your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, is there actually, is, 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 how are you thinking about it? Yeah. Uh, we're watching that really closely. The drop in FFAs, those are the freight forwarding agreements that kind of like futures for dry bulk. Uh, it was precipitous. Uh, it was very volatile and, and, and dry bulk is normally volatile. So the volatility didn't surprise us, but the drop was really fast. And so it's a question of how much of this is based on fundamentals, how much of this is based on demand falling apart, and how much of it is based on you know, too much speculation in the space. If you zoom out about a month or two, you can see the dry bulk rates that skyrocketed in the FFAs from about 35,000 a day to 80,000 in a month. I mean, it was just a spike. And, and anytime you see a spike like that on a chart, you're thinking, what's going on here? Is this a bubble? Is it financial like engineering? Or what's going on here? Yep. So we, we think a lot of hot money poured into some of those FFAs and bid them up. There was almost like a, not a short, it wasn't a short squeeze, but, but a similar dynamic. Like a lot of buyers ran in trying to get uh, freight and, and it just spiked the price. It wasn't sustainable and, and it's kind of came off. So that's part of it. Um, another part of it is that China is facing two challenges. The first challenge is a significant energy shortage. Yep. In fact, about a month ago, uh, China's coal inventories were at record lows. They were only about three to four days of inventories at a lot of power plants. India, at the same time, is facing a coal shortage. 
I think 80% of India's power plants have a week or less of coal left. So big power shortage across the entire region. So Chinese officials saw that and kind of panicked, right? Yep. And, and they said, we, we have to divert our trade to focus on coal right now. We need to get coal as much as we can. So what they did was they forced a lot of these manufacturing and industrial areas to slow their production. So a lot of the steel mills, coal is used very heavily in, in steel production. So a lot mm -hmm. of the uh, steel mills were ordered to slow their production to, or even halt temporarily so they could divert that. Well, that meant that dry bulk is focused heavily, heavily, heavily on iron ore. I mean, the, the cape sizes are the large, the largest dry bulk ships, and those focus immense iron ore is the number one cargo. So when China halted or ordered their mills, uh, steel mills to stop producing steel, the iron ore demand just like went off a cliff. Yep. So that's part one. Part two is China is also looking forward to the Olympics. They're going to host Olympics next January, February. And ahead of that, they want to clean up the air. Air quality in China has been an issue for 20 years, and it's getting worse and worse. Yep. And as part of that initiative to clean up the air, they're going to have to slow down the industrial processes. They're going to have to find the really dirty uh, steel mills and other places and have them slow down or even stop. So there's, there's two things. One, well, actually, I guess there's three in total. So one is there's way too much speculation, way too much hot money came in. Two is China's in the middle of an uh, midst of an energy crisis and they're dealing with that. And three, they're looking at cleaning up the air ahead of this Olympics. So what do we expect as investors and traders? We, we expect a lot of volatility in dry bulk. And, and dry bulk is all, it's a spot market. I mean, it's, it's a volatile. When the rates go up, FFAs go up, stocks go up. When rates, FFAs go down, stocks go down. That's our playground. We like it. Uh, we like the medium term story. Uh, so net net today, we're probably buyers, um, but we're not surprised to see the stocks go down. In fact, it would be, it was actually more surprising yesterday when the FFAs were down really hard and the stocks were all flat. I was actually kind of scratching my head and thinking, well, these stocks should probably be down a little bit yesterday. And, and just so folks know it's a recording, but um, that would, I'm talking about uh, November 3rd on Wednesday, uh, the dry bulk stocks were all flat, maybe even up a percent. The FFAs were down 8%. Yep. And that was weird. They, they, the stocks, we, we thought the stocks probably should have been down. Yep. Yep. Got it. And, you know, sort of as a follow-up to that, you know, does that mean small and mid-sized ships? Uh, or do you think they would be more insulated in practice due to the fact that they have more diverse cargo and less reliance on China? So, you know, you sort of talked about the China dynamics. So, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you might have seen one of my recent uh, presentations. I was talking about the mid-size differences. Yeah, mid-size focuses on a, on a bunch of cargoes. Cape sizes are the large guys, the large ships. They carry anywhere from 180,000 tons, <laughs> 180,000 tons. Yeah. It's a massive millions of pounds of cargo. And those focus almost exclusively on iron ore, a little bit of coal inside that. The mid-sizes carry everything. Uh, not so much iron because iron is mostly on case, but they carry every, they carry coal, grains, forestry products, bauxite, all sorts of different products. And it's a global trade. It's not just uh, Brazil, China, or Australia, China, whatever. It's a global, global trade. And we've noticed throughout the past year that those have been the backbone of the market. Uh, there's volatility. I mean, dry bulk is a volatile space, but the midsize rates have been smoother and stronger week after week after week. And even recently, uh, we, we've seen the cape size rates, they've dropped from 80,000 a day to around 30 in, in like three weeks, four weeks. So that's a huge drop. Um, I don't want to do public math, but I think that's like a 65% drop in like three weeks or four weeks. Um, the midsize rates are down a little bit. Um, but they're down 15% or something, 15, 20%. Yep. So you look at midsize down 15% and, and the capes are down, the large ones are down 65, 70. So yeah, we like the midsize a lot better. And, and one company that I've talked about, I, just to get that kind of out of the way, I do own this company. So I'm, I'm talking my book. It's a position we have, but it's Eagle Bulk. 
E-G-L-E. And, and they're actually going to report earnings. I, I think by the time this is out as a recording, the earnings will already be out. They're actually reporting in like an hour and a half. So folks can check out the earnings and then see if they're good. We think they're going to be good. Uh, they've announced a 30% dividend payout policy and a, and a share repurchase program. Um, so we're excited. And hopefully when you all see the recording, I won't look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And now moving forward, I wanted to ask you, um, so another thing that came up on Twitter was that, you know, how do you, how do you uh, see the Iran situation potentially playing out? And, you know, what are the repercussions that's going to have on tankers? Yeah, it, it's very interesting geopolitical question. Um, as far as tanker shipping markets, I, I don't want to get too far ahead. Uh, I don't want to put the cart too far ahead of the course here. Uh, we expect Iraq's going to be uh, compliant with the OPEC uh, export requirements. Um, I'm actually more interested. They've had some disruptions, um, but we think when the oil production comes back online, they're going to be compliant with OPEC. So we're really looking at OPEC and seeing what their export levels are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of getting too granular in a certain country, um, I, I would definitely uh, see what their export levels are. OPEC just had a meeting earlier this week, and and one of the or not a meeting, but they issued a statement. And and one of the questions folks were asking is, hey, first of all, is OPEC going to accelerate? their exports because the oil market's looking pretty strong, right? Yep. Are they going to accelerate? And secondly, um, there's a report out a week ago that was saying some of the OPEC members are unable to export enough. That, that's weird. I mean, that's never been yep. a problem. <laughs> like usually they're cheating, right? Usually they're exporting too much. Yep. Um, some of the members just cannot meet their capacity uh, export constraints. And there was a question of will other OPEC members like Saudi Arabia, uh, like Kuwait, maybe maybe Russia, because Russia is partnering with them, will they increase their exports to make up for those other members? And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick country by country to our guidelines. We're not going to do that. So that was tremendously bullish for oil markets. Yep. If you own oil companies, like you were celebrating, we put party hats on or whatever. For oil tankers, no, it wasn't really a good thing at all. It was a bad thing because for oil tankers, Remember, ton miles. We got to get that oil on the water. We got to get that oil going to Asia. We got to get that oil going to the United States. Um, Also, U.S. prices, gas prices are surging in the United States. For oil tankers, we want cheap U.S. oil. And you say, why do you want that? Well, I want cheap U.S. oil so we can ship that oil out of the Gulf all the way over to, to China, to Korea, to Japan, to India because that is three times further. It's about two and a half times further to ship from the United States to Asia as it is to ship from Middle East to Asia. So for tankers, no, um, it's not bullish. We're not happy. Um, I think tankers have, have, you know, some of the stocks are interesting. There's one I've talked about before that we like that we've actually been buying recently, but no, I, I think tanker recovery is pushed back. I think we're looking mid to late 2022. And so I think some folks have gotten ahead of themselves. I think they say the tanker recovery is going to happen any day now. Um, no, I'm, I'm not so optimistic on that. I think you have to be very, very selective when you buy tanker companies. You have to buy ones with good balance sheets, with good management teams, ones that trade at big discounts. And you know, some of them have kind of gotten ahead of themselves. Yep. And you know, how do you see congestion in containers in 2022? And how do you think that's going to affect shipping rates? And you know, more importantly, how is that going to affect shipping equities? Yeah, um, you're again asking the right questions here. The the congestion factor has been a huge I mean, benefit, right, for for container liners. Um, but it gets to a point where there's just so much congestion that you know it could start hurting the end market. It could start hurting the economy. And then I think we're at that point, honestly. Or we're at that point, or maybe even dangerously close to passing that point. So at this point, um, I actually I'm happy if we can get some of this congestion to unwind a little bit. 
I'd be happy to see the, the, um, the delays of the ports going down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we need to see that. I, I think it's to a point where, you know, yeah, I want to make money on shipping and, and yeah, this is good for us. It has been good for us. Um, but no, I, I, I congestion's peaked right now. It's extreme. I don't want more of it. Um, I don't want it to stay around like this for six months. Oh, look, I, I think we're going to start making slow progress um, between now, we're talking uh, November 4th, um, between now and I think around middle of February. Middle of February is usually kind of the weakest, slowest part of the year. Uh, first of all, it's weak because the U.S. holiday season is already over. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all that's Hanukkah. Everything's in the past. Yep. And it's also Chinese New Year. So China is focusing inward. They're celebrating their holiday, their new year. Um, their factories are idle. They're not making things. So, so that's kind of a slowing down and a little bit of a chance for everybody to catch their breath. And, and this congestion thing, it happens almost every year. It just doesn't happen this much, right? And, and every year there's cycles. And every year, August through November is a madhouse, a scramble for cargo. And every year there's a breathing period and it happens between middle of January and middle of March. It's a breathing period. Everyone catches their breath and everybody's like, well, we got to get ready for the next holiday season. I mean, we've been in this industry for 11 years and I've seen over and over and over again. So yeah, I I think we're going to follow similar patterns, but there's about 12 to 13 different choke points in the U.S. market. One of them is the ships coming out of China. There's not enough ships. Mm -hmm. One of them is the congestion at the ports that we were talking about. Another one is the storage at the ports. There's not enough storage for these container boxes. Another one is a shortage of chassis. These are the little uh, metal, uh, basically metal frames with wheels that you put the box on and haul it to the truck. Um, So there's a shortage of chassis. There's a shortage of truck drivers. There's issues with the COVID mandate that might be coming into play in a few weeks. And I don't want to get into politics of that, but there's just, that's only, I've listed five or six things, just me and you. There's actually 12 or 13 of them. And you know, these things are not easy to fix. You can't just wave your hand and make them go away. So long-term, I mean, long-term, medium-term, 2022, 2023, I think we're going to see elevated levels of congestion. I don't think it's going to be as bad, or at least I'm hopeful, right? I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful, history, but I, I think it's not going to be as bad as it was last month and this month, but yep. I think the rates are going to be elevated. Sorry for the long answer. There's so many dynamics into it. There is, definitely. And you know, one thing that you mentioned towards the end, so I believe earlier this week, you know, there was an article that came out. I think it was on Medium called I'm a 20 year truck driver and I will tell you why America's shipping crisis will not end. So I don't know if you had a chance to read that, but um, yeah, it's a great one. It's been going around. It's been going around everywhere. I I saw it when it was first published uh, because obviously our membership of of folks are very attuned to that. And then I've seen it going around and around and around on Twitter. And and that's great because it's a a very well written uh, piece. And and I think it's it's written in such a way that everybody can understand it. um, And it really just cuts to the heart of the matter. So any questions you have on that? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Yep. And, you know, so uh, one thing that you were talking about earlier was, you know, number one, China has this coal shortage. And, you know, what the government did was they forced steel mills, for example, to either either shut down completely or to slow the rate of production so that, you know, they could dedicate coal. They could get some coal from them. So now how do you see, how do you see this, uh, you know, play out over, say, the next year? And, you know, what's the impact going to be on Tri-Bulk? Yeah, so I, I think dry bulk is going to remain volatile. I think the midsize is going to continue to be the backbone of it. So I, I like those companies like Eagle Bulk are going to do pretty well, I think. Um, but every year, and this is not just last couple of years, this is, I think, 20 out of the last 21, something like that. Yep. Every year, this dry bulk rates weaken into the Chinese New Year. It happens every single year. And, and the rates are strong, September, October, November, maybe December. 
And then they crash into January and they're weak in February. They're kind of weak in March. And then they start going back up again. It happens every year. And so I think what we're having now is just the whole seasonality is just shifted to the left by like a month or two. So that crash that you normally get in December or January, it's happening in November, the tail end of October. November. That's what I think. I mean, right. I mean, nobody knows for sure. Yep. Uh, some of this stuff is kind of, some of this stuff, I've, I've been doing shipping for 11 years. Some of this stuff's a little random, but that's what we think is happening. And we think it's because of the energy crisis. And we think it's because of the upcoming Olympics and the national policy around that. So after the Chinese new year, oh, by the way, the Olympics is now over. Oh, by the way, the temperatures are getting warmer. So there's no longer a heating and energy crisis. We expect that demand's going to pick right back up. Yep. And there's no ships hitting the water. The supply, the new order book is basically nil. It's like 2%, which is, you might as well be zero. I mean, there's no new ships hitting the water. The old ships are getting older. There's new environmental regulations that start in 2023. And we expect the backbone for iron ore, bauxite, uh, all that stuff is going to remain constant, if not increasing. Uh, final point on that, I want to bring it up, is infrastructure is a theme around the world. Uh, the United States has been, you know, political football on this thing for a while, but it looks close, looks close to passing. But it's not just the United States. I mean, we're doing infrastructure in Europe. They're doing infrastructure all across Asia. We think China is going to focus even more efforts on infrastructure because yep. China right now is facing their own issues with Evergrande and, and the sort of the housing sector. We think we're, we think they're going to divert a lot more infrastructure resources into stuff like highways and high-speed rail and things like that. Oh, by the way, climate change. Think of all the new solar power plants you're going to build, all the water uh, facilities for the, the there's this, the solar uh, type of solar that heats up the water and, and does that. So all that stuff requires a lot of concrete, requires yep. a lot of steel, a lot of iron, a lot of copper. So I think we're going to see a very, very robust medium to long-term dry bulk demand, even with, even with all the climate change. In fact, I think climate change and infrastructure are accelerating that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, to hop on one of the things that you mentioned, you know, how much speed reduction do you actually um, expect from these new EEXI regulations? And, you know, for someone not aware, EEXI basically requires, you know, ship, uh, ship operators to control and assess, you know, the, the energy consumption and the CO2 emission of their ships. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, how much speed reduction are you expecting? Yeah. So the, another fantastic question. Uh, the easy answer is like, it remains to be determined, right? Um, but if I'm taking a best stab, a best guess at that, EEXI actually comes into play on a rolling five-year basis. It's not all at once. It's not January 1st, 2023. It's on. The way it works is starting in January, 2023, when a ship comes up for its special survey, which is again, rolling basis, it'll take up to five years they must comply with the EEXI, which is the emissions uh, standard that the European Commission is setting up. The IMO uh, that ran by the United Nations is probably gonna have their own mechanism, which may be even more robust. We, know, we don't know yet, they haven't produced it yet. But going off this standard, all the older ships are the ones that are gonna have to really slow down because they have inefficient engines and more inefficient designs. So we're looking at the ships that were built pre-2012-ish, 2020, uh, so anything built from like 1995 to about 2011, 2012 are targeted ships that we think are going to have to slow down. The ships that were built modern, so 2023 or newer, most of them are what do we call eco-design. And most of those ships are going to be able to maintain similar levels of speed. They're not going to be able to speed up, but we don't think they're going to have to slow down. Remember, it's a rolling basis. So it's, it starts in 23. It helps us in 3, 24, 25, 26, 27. So it's like a nice gradual a decrease in supply. It's not like the rates are going to spike up on day one here. 
this is just kind of like a I would call it like a tailwind, right? A tailwind to our, our markets. Um, I, I think we should expect a synthetic reduction in supply somewhere between five and 10% over time is what we expect. Um, that remains to be seen exactly how it plays out. And five or 10% at first, you might say that's not a huge difference. But you saw what happened last year with the iron, or excuse me, with the coal with Australia. That was a two to 3% change. And you saw what it did to rates. Um, the congestion issues that we've seen with container ships, that was a five to 10% shift. And you saw what happened with rates. So when I say there's going to be a five to 10% supply reduction between 23 and 27, that's, that's a pretty damn big number. You know, as a follow-up to that, you know, one thing that was asked on Twitter and that I found interesting was, you know, will EXI and, you know, this, uh, this you know, future carbon regulation, would that actually increase the dry bulk uh, rate volatility? Because, you know, that would cause, uh, that would discourage, you know, partial loads of small cargoes to big ships and splitting, you know, cargo to smaller vessels, because that would be, that would, that would reduce the energy efficiency. So would that actually, would that actually increase um, dry bulk rate volatility? Yeah, another good question. Um, the, the load splitting and stuff like that, that happens a little bit with arbitrage and when rates go wild. Uh, we saw it a little bit uh, recently with the Cape size rates going to 80,000 and, and the mid size rates were still, you know, a very, very strong, but they were like 35,000. Mm -hmm. So you, you could see some of the economics for that. Yeah, I think there's gonna be a little bit less of the load splitting in the sense that like, okay, it's a Cape size at 80 versus two small ships at 35. Because it's you know, on paper, you might say 35 plus 35 is, is 70 and 70 is cheaper than 80. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's going to be less of that going forward. But that's kind of a niche thing anyways. It, it's not really a significant factor, like load splitting and, and that sort of thing. There's also been talk about folks saying, oh, well, the midsize rates are holding up stronger. Midsize rates right now, by the way, Shreen, are actually higher than Cape sizes. So there's been some folks that are like, well, instead of you know having a Panamax, why don't I get a Cape size? I can have double the capacity. Well, okay, first of all, Double capacity does you no good if your ship can't even go to the right ports. Second of all, it does you no good if you can't fill the ship all the way up because then you're just being inefficient. And third of all, the larger ship has way more fuel consumption. So all that kind of stuff, it, it makes sense on paper and on like Excel sheets, but it, it's pretty niche and pretty nuanced. So will it have some impact? Yeah, but will it impact the rate volatility to a massive degree? And I don't really think so. Got it. Got it. And one thing that is sort of more... Uh applied towards you know the equity side of things so which shipping asset classes order book do you actually find the most concerning in terms of uh, from an equity standpoint you know which which order book do, do i find to be the riskiest yep um i, th I think the riskiest order book the one that, that's given us the most caution is actually an lpg it's not a really widely followed uh, se segment um these are vlgc's very large gas carriers uh, we're actually long a couple of companies in the space. So we think the company stocks actually are good and attractive and well-valued, um, but we're really concerned about the order book. It's just too big. Um, it doesn't really make sense to us. The only way that order book is going to work out positively is if ammonia really takes off. There's some talk about using ammonia as an alternative uh, green fuel, right? Because when you burn ammonia, you don't get a CO2 output. Um, so there's been some talk about doing that. Um, some of these older LPG carriers are basically dual capacity. They can carry ammonia without us, without any upgrades. So they can just carry it and trade it. Um, if ammonia takes off, then the order book's fine, but that's a big gamble. Um, so when I look at 2023 deliveries for VLGCs, LPG, I, I don't like it. I'm concerned. Um, that's the worst one. The other one I would be flagging, cautious, would be container ships. Um, there's been a rampant surge in new orders. However, caveat, those don't start until late 23 into like mid to late 24. 
we are a little concerned about the level right now. The order books are around 24 to 25%. That compares to an order book of less than 10% last year. So if you look at 10 to 25, you're like, holy cow, the order book's two and a half times bigger, we're in trouble. If you zoom out on a 20 year chart, a 25% is actually average to below average. It's not a huge order book. Yep. Um, it, we also have to think about the EEXI. Uh, mm-hmm. Shri, we, we spent a lot of time or a little bit of time talking about EEXI and bulkers, but where EEXI is really going to play is container ships. The container ships are gas hogs. I mean, they're really, they're really huge emitters. And, and whenever you look at these medium-sized container ships, they're almost all middle-aged old ships. And so they're almost all impacted by EEXI. So I said 5 to 10% reduction in, in, in dry bulk uh, synthetic supply. I think it's 10 to 15% synthetic supply reduction in container ships. I really do. I, th- I think that's the sector that's, it's overlooked and it hasn't been talked about as much, I don't think, but that's the sector. Dry bulk, yeah, a little bit, but it's really about container ships. So am I terrified of that order book? No, but I have, I, I would say like a yellow flag on it. I don't want it to see it get any bigger. Yeah. Um, if I if I see another big order tomorrow or next week, I'm going to be, I'm going to start putting more yellow flags on it and might turn into a red flag. So long answer, but the LPG order book's the worst and, and container ships is cautious. And and I wanted to move over to sort of talking about the investment side of things. So, so you know, one the one stock that you're sort of really well known for is you know being long ZIM and and so for you know so so what else do you see attractive from a attractive in the in the shipping industry? You know, uh, from an investor standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Zim integrated ZIM. I'm still long that one, trading it actively as well. Love that company. It's been a huge winner for us. <laughs> How many times can you find a company that has good management, is a liquid stock, had no balance sheet issues, and has like $20 of cash per share, no debt, no debt remaining, and it trades at 1.4 times earnings. <laughs> I mean, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. So we still like Zim. Um, but you're, you're right. I'm well known for that. I've talked a lot about it. Everyone's tired of hearing about it. Um, the, other, the other company I like a lot, I've mentioned this publicly, but I don't think it's very popular. I don't think it's gotten as much uh, momentum as Zim. Is this company called Global Ship Lease, GSL. What GSL does is they're almost more of a financing play. They own those container ships, the ships that carry the boxes. They own them and they supply them. They lease those ships out to the liners. So they lease the ships to companies like Zim, companies like Maersk, CMA, CGM. And they lease them on terms of usually three to five years. And yep. they've been rolling their, their legacy fleet, same ships. They've been rolling those legacy ships on brand new charters, three to five years at all-time record high rates. And GSL has a net asset value. So net asset value is like if you sold all the ships and closed up shop and paid off your debt, there's how much money you'd have left. Yep. Um, even adjusting for the charters, because they, they signed a few charters too early in hindsight. And I mean, like six months ago, like we didn't think, even I didn't think the rates would be as high as they are now. So GSL has some negative charters that are below market. But even adjusting for those charters, we have GSL's nav pegged in the lower to mid 60s per share. I, I don't know the price exactly right now. I think it's like 23, 24 bucks is where it trades right now. So the net asset value is in the 60s. Um, we have a fair value estimate that, that I believe is really conservative, but we're trying to be more, we, we like to aim low. We like to be conservative. Our fair value estimate is 20, uh, $45. And that compares to a stock that trades at 23. Um, so we think it could basically almost double uh, just to get to a fair valuation. The reason we like that one a lot too is you don't really need to be checking in every day and every week at the latest rates because it's yep. a fixed business. Yeah, it's three to five years. So yeah, do we want to see rates stronger? Sure, why not? Mm-hmm. But if the rates go down tomorrow, I don't really care. 
I mean, the Harpex has basically, the Harpex is an index which tracks the containership leasing rates. It peaked two weeks ago. Last Friday, it went down a little bit. The next reading is going to come out tomorrow, uh, November 5th. It's probably going to be lower. It should be lower. We're past the peak season. Like, duh, it's going to be lower. Um, we don't really care. All the ships are signed three to five years. So we're, we're really excited about that one. Trades at like, trades at like three times forward earnings. And yet the whole fleet's fixed for three to five years. Like it, it just doesn't add up. And then sort of, uh, sort of to reach, uh, reach the end of our podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, what you could call the macro of this. So number one, so number one, you know, what would actually have to change for, you know, the whole thing uh, to become, I guess, what's called transitory. So, you know, so, so far, you know, what we've sort of established is that, you know, uh, things here, things don't seem to be pretty, things don't seem to be all that good considering, you know, number one, uh, yeah, as, at the start, as you mentioned, you know, the changes are changes on the demand side aren't looking good and you know there's shortages all over, all over the world so you know from that standpoint you know, what would actually have to change for the entire uh the, the entire you know supply chain uh the blo blockage or the bottlenecks to become uh transitory yeah no, it's, it's, it's a good question it's the right question um transitory is such a loaded political word <laughs> these days <laughs> like what does that mean uh transitory inflation yeah no i mean some of this stuff is obviously transitory i mean like if you look at the extreme level of backlog that we saw last month that we're still seeing this month that's I, I don't like the word transitory but that's that's temporary right i mean that that's not going to persist forever nobody thinks that's going to persist forever now when you say things are going to clear up do you mean you know clear up to like five years ago when, when when things were at like terrible rates and liners were doing bad or do you mean return to a normal situation like maybe six or seven or eight months ago where rates were still elevated, but product was moving, right? I mean, it, it's all about how you set up your expectations and stuff like that. Um, it, it, I guess there's two questions. So one, sort of the implied question is like, hey, Jay, what makes you like wake up and say, I'm gonna sell all my shipping stocks. <laughs> like what makes me wake up and say like, holy shit, shipping's not a good place to be in. These aren't great investments. Um, that's really a worldwide recession tree. I mean, if we, if we get to a point where there was some fear around Evergrande in China, but if we get to the, uh, the point where we're back in 2008 and everything is crashing and the lights are <laughs> lights are turning off and the yep. banks are falling left and right and the global economy is stalling. And I mean, global collapse. Yeah. I mean, shipping's going to suck. Like it's going to get hurt just like everything else. So that's really what it takes Shri, to, to make us turn negative on shipping is a full up global recession. Um, I, I think we can hedge that out, but with, with things like puts on like the SPY index, the S&P 500, or things like puts on the NASDAQ, I'm not particularly doing that. That's not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is shipping stocks. So I'm focused on the long, long side of things and pair trades. Um, but, but yeah, that's the risk is a global recession. And I think you hedge that out by being short things like the index. Um, if you're just asking me about like, you, you know, people in the United States buying goods, like, hey, when are the store shelves going to be fixed? Look, I think things are going to get a lot more healthy um, by Chinese New Year, by February, by March. Um, I think Americans' way of life in terms of goods on the shelf is going to be healthy um, by mid-2022. Now, shipping costs, I think elevated shipping costs, though, they're here to stay. I, I think folks got artificially conditioned during the last decade. We had a huge oversupply. Yep. Um, and one last thing, I know this is a really long answer, but I want, uh, no. I want, folks, I want folks to think about how airline pricing dynamics and how air travel has changed so much in the last 10 to 20 years. I mean, looking back 10 or 20 years ago, airlines were perpetually losing money. 
they were going bankrupt left and right. Every time you logged on to Priceline.com or Kayak or whatever the hell they have, you could find air travel tickets for like 70, 80 bucks, you know? And it was always a fire sale. It was always a race to the bottom. It was a terrible yep. place to invest. That's how container liners were in 2012 to 2018. They were just like the airliners. They were competing on everything. It was a race to the bottom. It was a terrible market. There's been so much consolidation, so much rationalization in that industry that it's a lot like airlines in the United States. If you look at airline profits in the last four to five years, profits have skyrocketed. Air travel is always way more expensive than it used to be. It's harder to find deals. They're not undercutting each other. They're cooperating in alliances. Um, if, and I think a lot of people just haven't quite realized that yet. And the same thing happened with airlines. You look at stocks like Southwest Airlines, LUV. It took a long time for the, the investment public to realize that LUV, Southwest Airlines, and actually Warren Buffett was actually ahead of the curve. He was buying airlines five, 10 years ago. People like Warren Buffett, you're crazy. Airlines suck. He was correct. They were consolidating. The game has changed. And, and I think that's true for, for Ocean Westers today. Yep. Awesome. You know, with that, Jay, you know, thank you so much for an awesome interview. I know I'm probably going to have to go back, listen to it. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot. So I think our listeners will as well. And you know, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, absolutely. It's always the objective is for folks to learn something. That's all I can ask. And it was a great time talking with you today, Sheree. I'm on uh, Twitter at Mincemeyer. Um, so yeah, just, just hop on Twitter, give me a follow and uh, feel free to reach out with a question or, or if there was something I didn't answer or Shri and I didn't talk about in today's interview, uh, just post that below the tweet or wherever this gets posted and I'll do my best to answer. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.